Blog Talk Radio. Welcome all truth seekers from around the world. This is Karen Heasley, your host for today. Our guest is Margarita Simon Guillory. She is the author of Spiritual and Social Transformation in African American Spiritual Churches. We will be discussing this book with her today. This is truly a fascinating book to read. There is such knowledge and information in it. I just couldn't put it down. It was jam-packed with a lot of things. So after our chat today, we will be taking calls here. Here's the number to call, 657-383-0416. I'm going to say that again, 657-383-0416. And um, today we're fortunate we have a chat room open as well. So let's get started and talk to our guest. Hello there. How are you? Hello, how are you? I'm doing I'm doing very well. Good. Well, this was a fascinating read. I mean, there's just so much in it, and I'm sure a lot of spiritualists do not know the history of what you put in this book. What can I ask mm-hmm. you a question? What sure um, drove you to uh, to do this subject? You know, a lot of people they oh I'm going to do spiritualism. Well, I don't know about that, but I found it fascinating that you picked that. Yeah. Well, I must say that I feel like spiritualism chose me. <laughs> um, easily and, and I, yeah, the, the subject matter chose me. Um, initially, I went to graduate school um, not necessarily wanting to study um, spiritualism. Um, I had never heard of spiritualism before. And my advisor, he's one of the reasons he became the conduit. (laughs) Um, He was working on this encyclopedia of African-American religious um, histories, and he had some entries that he needed to to get done, and he decided, you know, that he was going to assign them to me. Well, all of these entries in this encyclopedia were based upon African-American spiritual groups, you know, different groups from around the country. And so as I conducted the research, this is my first year of graduate school, mind you. And so I'm, you know, I'm conducting this, this research, and I just totally am, I'm bitten by the book. <laughs> I was just like, why has no, and, and I'm like, no one has written about these, these groups and in this faith. And I was just like, this is what I want to do. So it was like a full, it was a full turn where I was like, this is what I know. I, I want to study African-American spiritualists, spiritualism mm-hmm. more broadly. I want to do this for my career. Like, I made that decision my first year of graduate school based upon writing some encyclopedia entries that no one else wanted to write. And so, and this is what I mean by spiritualism found me. I couldn't, I couldn't let go of it. And I'm still <laughs> very committed to to writing about spiritualism in a variety of ways. So that so you're gonna, this I'm is, sorry. yeah, this it started then. 
Oh, so you're going to write another book based on uh, spiritualism as yes. well? Yes. So I am actually currently writing a book. Um, uh, it's also going to be published with Rutledge. It's called Africana Religion in the Digital Age. And the first chapter still sort of talks about it's sort of a history of technology, but it's a history of technology by way of African-American spiritualists. So in that chapter, I sort of look at the ways in which um, technology, like if you look at modern American spiritualism, mm-hmm. Tech, mm-hmm. you know, technological usage uh, usages of all these different things, though these devices and these technologies, was always a part of spiritualism. And so I'm using that, and and what you have are, are like really early African American spiritualists, and and well into the 20th century, using various modes of technology to promote. Um, spiritualism. And so that chapter, that's sort of my, my premier chapter before I start talking about the variety of ways that, that other African-American religious experiences are expressed via um, technology, social media, gaming, and different things like that. But then the book after that is going to be a history of African-American spiritualists, a history, the entire book. So, well, then, yeah. That's wonderful. Um, so then when you get that done, we'll have to have you back on the show and have a sequel. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I was so impressed by this quote that was in the book, um, and I'd like to read it. It's about Lisa Anderson. Mother Anderson's mm-hmm. funeral was one of the largest funerals I've ever seen. Mothers had their babies in their arms. She was boys and gum-chewing girls, both white and black men, in overhauls and tidy dress suits, and people of all descriptions marched side by side into funeral procession. Prejudice and segregation were put aside on this occasion. Mm-hmm. I found that fascinating. Yeah. Um, Mother Lisa Anderson was a very powerful woman. And um, she was a very smart woman. And, you know, based upon your reading of that chapter, um, she was very, she had a business savvy, um, Mm -hmm. but she had an uncanny way of bringing people together under the banner of spiritualism. And I really try to press, that, you know, when you think about African-American spiritual churches, and we'll, we could talk about the difference, you know. Um, yes. What I wanted to try to hit home, particularly in the beginning chapters of the book, chapters okay. one through three, is mm-hmm. that these early, um, these African-Americans who were an instrumental part of the spiritualist movement in New Orleans were indeed spiritualists. They were not Spiritual, you know, we'll talk. We can talk about that momentarily. But yeah, they were a part. They were a part of the modern American spiritualism. Modern American spiritualism, as originated by way of the Bible. This was a part of their, um, their, their lineage. So much so that mother, and we see it in newspaper articles. Like I actually found articles where Mother Lisa Anderson, she was bringing in speakers from Lilydale. So she, she was. was very, she was even connected to that community. Yes. So she was, she was a spiritualist. 
And mm-hmm. so she, um, she just had this uncanny way, and she was really smart. And she, mm-hmm. she had this way of bringing people together in this Jim Crow um, um, New Orleans. And what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, the, inter- the, the Eternal Life um, Christian Spiritualist Church was an integrated, it was integrated. Um, it was, you know, African-American, people of African descent, but it was also a mixture of um, Sicilians. So it, it, there were um, Sicilians there, and Italians were so much a part of her, um, her the early days of her, her church is that her church was actually financed, like the building of yeah, the I've read structure that. through the yeah. Italian Homestead Association. Mm-hmm. Like their mission was not to help African-Americans build you know, infrastructure up from the ground up. That's not what they were designed to do. That wasn't a part of their mission. But this says so much about who Mother Lucy Anderson was, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I saw that. I because I wondered where she got the upstart money, and that's what an organization of uh, Italian American immigrants uh, gave her money to start the church. Yeah, yeah. I found and then that she already. Yeah, but and in, in the thing about it is, see, when Mother Lisa Anderson, she came from Chicago. I know so she she, did. she is yeah she, did. she established her so she was pretty she was really involved in mm-hmm. um, the spiritualist movement in Chicago before she even transplants herself to New Orleans. So financially, she was already sort of secure because by the mm-hmm. time she she starts her church in New Orleans. The first Eternal Life Christian Spiritualist Church had already been, you know, established in Chicago for over five years by that point. Um, she she was known as a as a healer, and so she was already sort of making money by way of this, you know, doing readings, um, doing healing services, and people would, of course, give her um, donations or give her, you know, an offering for whatever she's done for them. And so she's already sort of, you know, she's already sort of secure financially when she makes that move to New Orleans. But people were people were so um, in marvel of her and what she was able to do for a short period of time that they wanted to be a part of it for so many different reasons. They wanted so to be a I, part of her movement. Yeah, they wanted to be part of her. <laughs> You yeah. know what? I found it fascinating that she actually went down there knowing that she could have got arrested for fortune telling and mediumship was yep. also included in an ordinance. Yeah. But she came she, she went down there anyway. She's smart. Yeah, she was very she, she, did. Was, she was she was courageous and she was very smart. And she knew that and she knew her population. So she knew yes. that more African Americans in 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 Chicago were a little bit more open to um, traditions other than Christianity, right? Because about mm-hmm. this time in Chicago, mm-hmm. you have all sorts of um, esoteric oriented African American groups that are sort of that that are propagating in urban centers like Chicago and New York City. So. But she understood that when she made that move to New Orleans, that most of the people who were going to sort of join this movement were coming from Christian backgrounds. So she she knew what she was doing. So what she did was she she 
made sure that she amplified the Christian in Eternal Life Christian Spiritualist Church. So she she played to that, right? That no, this is spiritualism, but she had this Christian, she painted like this Christian veneer on it because she knew that okay, if I just say that this is a spiritualist church, they're going to arrest me. They arrested her anyway. They <laughs> so, arrested her twice, um, I thought. Wow. They arrested her twice. Yeah. Um, and, 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 of course, that was political. But she, she yeah. understood her, um, she understood the population. And, and so she understood that Christianity was very part of, it was Catholicism in general, in particular mm-hmm. in, in Louisiana, had a stronghold. Catholicism was um, integrated into everything. And so she understood that. Um, <clears throat> so this is why it was important for her to sort of put that veneer of Christianity. And she has, me- she has, she has members who, Zora Neale Hurston, great, great anthropologist and folklorist, um, mm-hmm. Zora Neale Hurston, mm-hmm. interview where they talked about she she didn't allow anyone to say Jesus in 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 the, in the sanctuary <laughs> because she's like this is not a Christian space this is this is this is about spirit this is not about Jesus Jesus is spirit um, mm-hmm. so what she did was she utilized Christianity to sort of bait people in <clears throat> excuse me to propagate the spiritualist faith so it she was just really smart about how she, she did of, she got people in. <laughs> And once they were in, they stayed. They stayed. They said, oh, this isn't too bad. So what got me, too, she got incorporated, and so she used that Christian, you know, the name of the church to help get incorporated. (coughs) Yes, she did. Because she knew if she didn't, if she didn't sort of play up Christianity, she knew that it would be deemed as, um, witchcraft or, um, right. it, uh, you know, voodoo or, because don't forget all of these systems are operating within mm-hmm. New Orleans, right? So she's not coming into an area where it's just Catholicism. By the time Mother Lisa Anderson moves to New Orleans, you have like, you know, voodoo and different mixtures of voodoo, hoodoo, yeah, which is a whole other different system. All these, yeah. these religiosities, had already been really deeply rooted into the cultural, religious sort of cultural fabric of, of New Orleans. Um, so, she, and she knew that there were laws on the book. So she, once again, this is how smart she she is, right? Mm-hmm. She knows in order for her to get some things done, that she's going to have to play the game, and that's what she and that's what she did. And she and, played. and she played the game well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I find her such a strong, vibrant woman to do the things yep. that she did. I mean, there yep. was, a, you know, who go, who goes to New Orleans and and starts a spiritualist church knowing that there's ordinance on the books that you could get arrested? She didn't care. <laughs> she she just loved she spiritualism and she loved working yep. for spirit, right? Yep. Yep. She and she I, it, it for her it was worth it. Um, and she operated. If you listen, uh, you in the WPA, um, the Federal Writers Archives. I spent a lot of time okay. in a, a few archives, mm-hmm. and the people that they interviewed, who 
um, either were directly, you know, involved in her churches or they knew people who were involved in her, her, her church. They just talked about how um, courageous she, she was, how bold she was, that she didn't take no for an answer. Um, they talked about how powerful she was in, in, the, in the city of um, New Orleans, but across the Gulf Coast, because she had churches. She had a network of churches that she spanned she from, like Houston, 20, from Houston to yeah. Florida. Um, I mean, she, she had a really sophisticated network of churches. And she had a way of um, money, cash flow. Didn't she, she did readings, and then she used something with the corporation. There was yep. a few ways that she had cash flow, and she knew how to do it. Yes. Yes, I mean she had a business model. She basically had a business plan, um, and you know, of course, like from the very beginning, before she even built her church, she was having um, meetings in in civic halls. So, so this is where she starts in New Orleans. She doesn't start in a church per se, but she starts she in the civic halls. Hall. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. She starts there. And even her developing classes, this is where she starts to teach her developing classes. And a lot of things happen and materialize out of those developing classes. So people who would go on and receive charters and open up um, their churches sort of under the the banner of um, eternal life. Um, It's just amazing. And and it was done in, in such a short period of time. Um, until it's it's pretty it's an amazing feat for a black woman to be doing this, you know, in the opening decades of the 20th century. Um, it's it's almost unbelievable. <laughs> it's almost it unbelievable. Well, yeah. she she bought land around the church, right? She built this church. She lived in the yep. church, but she also bought land yep. around it too. Yes, she did. She and you know what, and she really instilled that in her, the people who um, who were you know because they so for her it was she understood most of the people in her developing classes what while she had an interracial congregation, um, most of the people in her developing classes were um, people of African descent, and she understood the power of so she trained them in a multitude of ways. Not only did she train them along the lines of all matter spirit, right, but she yeah. also trained them how to utilize your giftings in order for you to be financially secure. So you can, you know, help the next person. Because for her, you cannot, you can be spiritually gifted, but if you are lacking the basic needs, to live, then how are you going to how are you going to mature and thrive in your gifting? And so this is why it was so important for me to write about her in the way in which I wrote about her because people have sort of written about her in the past where they make it seem like oh she was this con artist or she was this she was that, and I'm just like no she understood that so. she was living she was she was helping a particular community, and for her, you should be, you should be paid for your gifting. So for her, it's just like anything else. If you're an electrician, you do work as an electrician, you expect to get paid. And so I don't understand when it's 
when it's when it comes to matters of the spirit, this is based upon my document, all of the historical documents. For her, it is about yes, you provide the service, but at the same time, you have to. So why? Who's okay. to say you can't do both and? <laughs> and so it, it's just interesting to see how she balanced it all and how she taught. Um, people who sort of um, tapped into eternal life and who sort of, you know, got these charters and they went on to start their other, their churches. Um, you could just see her fingerprints in all of these other places. And you can see it in the two, two spiritualist churches that are still there. Um, you could sort of see her fingerprints like all over them, um, all over the places there. Yeah, I'm sure. Because she's the one that really started everything. Yeah, yes, she right. She's the one that really started yes. it all down in New Orleans. It, well, and, and the thing about it is, spiritualism, you know, was you know already in New Orleans. And what's really fascinating is that even before Mother Lucy Anderson, you know, um, comes to New Orleans, you have um, Creoles who are practicing oh, yeah. mm-hmm. um, spiritualism. I mean, that it was a huge movement um, within the Creole population, and, and for people who don't know. What, what I mean by Creole is like people who are of mixed um, um, mixed heritage. Um, so okay. you have some who are mixed, um, who have um, who are descendants of Africans, but they are also mixed with um, Spanish and they have Spanish ancestry. But then you mm-hmm. have another um, track where they're Creole, but they're French and um, African um, descended. Uh, and so you had Tulane has this wonderful collection of the Hamunique uh, circle, which was one of the earliest um, spiritualist circles in New Orleans. Not just the Creoles, or but the the one of the oldest spiritual circles in New Orleans. Period. Um, and this was um, Henry Ray was the founder, and it went on like they we um, at Tulane they have like all of their seance journals. It's, it's just absolutely amazing. All of it is in can French. Can anybody go in there and see that? Yeah, yeah. Anyone oh, can yeah? see it. It's, it's all in French. Yeah, it's oh yeah, it's oh yeah, it's open to the public. Yeah, it's in it's just, it's in special collection. There's this wonderful book that I can um I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but this there was this young um um scholar who wrote a book on that circle. And oh. um it's just amazing to actually have like the pictures they have the act, so they recorded, they transcribed all of their seances, every last one of them. Wow. And that was actually happening. Their circle actually was meeting because these were free, these were what they call free people of color. So these were Creoles. Yeah. So they were, they were highly educated. They were sort of a mid, in the middle class. And so this was before the Civil War. This was during the antebellum period that they're meeting. Wow. And so yeah. Mother Leafy Anderson, so she enters in when that lineage is already sort of there. Mm-hmm. So it's already like people, it's already like the pump has been primed. <laughs> and she comes in and she offers this. Because they were in, they were in, they were in the parlors, right? They, they didn't have a church. What Mother right. Lisa Anderson did was she she institutionalized the movement in New Orleans. This is which this is her contribution that she moved it from the parlor and she actually gave it legs and it, it became a manifested reality, a public 
manifested reality through her. She was because by this, yeah, because because with this with the circle I just told you about that that started during the antebellum period, this happened in the privacy of their homes. It was very intimate. It happened in their homes. Mother Lisa Anderson comes in and said, "No, we should have sanctuaries. We should have churches." She was on the right track. So this is her contribution. Yeah, it is. And then she, um, I thought, she to generate capital with tuition-based educational courses, remittance yeah. fees for incorporation status, income-based yes. private mediumship consultations. <laughs> so you know she had, and then now what would happen if people like she incorporated churches, and then you were under her incorporation, right? Would the churches yep. that were under her incorporation, would they have to give money back to her or would she just yes. let them keep everything? No. I mean, it was really like a corporation. So they had yeah. to pay, you know, they had to pay fees. But what's interesting is, what's really interesting is that, like, for instance, if their churches need a repair or different things like that, uh-huh. she paid for that. <clears throat> eternal life, the association paid for that. So you, okay. so it wasn't necessarily going back to Mother Lisa Anderson. It was going back to going the eternal to life the spiritualist association because she had an association. association. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I got it. Thank you. That she started I, I in 1926. That. Mm-hmm. So that means that it goes back to, it goes back to the association. Yeah. Wow. Yep. That's, that's great. Because then you're just yeah, it's totally a business model. It, it's, it's totally, totally business a business model. model. They're helping. She's helping people, you know, raise up too. You know, to help self-esteem yep. and and empower yep. them. You know, to mm-hmm. beat the system and, on certain. <clears throat> and this is why she was arrested. So you know, um, there were there were others there was other spiritualist activity going on in the city, but. Mm-hmm. The, but this became such a problem, the, the, the money, right, the, the fact that people of African descent, first of all, she's unifying people. Right. <clears throat> she's telling them that the best way for you to apprehend to keep freedom is financial security, but not financial security for self, financial security for yourself first in order that you may get into a position where you can serve as an outlet or a catalyst mm-hmm. to to sort of propagate financial security for those in your immediate community, um, and and so in that way she she really promoted social activism. You know, it wasn't yes. just about the spirit, the spiritual side. For her, it was about social advancement um, as as well. This becomes a problem for your politicians and people in New Orleans, right? Some of, this becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so much so that, mm-hmm. you know, she, you know, you have those instances where she's arrested, dragged out of her, her space. But then you also have instances where, like, it's actually in the records, in the archives, where undercover police officers in plain clothes would sit in her churches, would sit in spiritualist churches, I know. not just hers, but yes. yeah. Was and so, Smith that was assigned yep. to her. Oh, was yeah, he was, he was, mm-hmm. a, yeah, he was, <laughs> he was that something was a, else. Oh, that quote, too, was bad. I mean, they said she was racist, yeah. you know, stirring yep. up the, 
black against the white, but you know, I couldn't vote high in the boys. Yeah. Yeah, it's it but it it's because of the sort of power that she mm. not only had in the city, but it was the it was the power that she encouraged others in the community to have. Yeah. That's problematic. In a, in, think about it this is. now. This is happening in the 1920s. Right? So in a gym, yes, in a Jim Crow, you know, yeah. environment, <clears throat> this is, you don't want this, right? No. This is not no. how, this is not how segregated societies remain segregated societies, right? Um, and so she was this incredible source of empowerment that not only ruffled the feathers of, you know, politicians in, in the area, but it also ruffled, ruffled the feathers of black Christian leaders in the area as well. So I can't, you can't, I would be remiss not to show both sides of the coin, right? No, um, then she to. also, you know, she, don't forget, spiritualists are also marginalized within the black communities as mm-hmm. well, not only during the time of Lisa Anderson, but this is sort of a fight that they have to fight still today. And present day um, um, New Orleans is that spiritualism is still sort of seen as this, as hoodoo or voodoo. Hoodoo. Or, could you, um, could you yes. explain and, that, hoodoo? I mean, some of our, our listeners won't, won't know exactly what that yeah, is. Please. Sure. So, so in so in in New Orleans, and I would say in the Gulf Coast Mississippi states in particular, um, okay. some areas in the in the Midwest like Chicago and Detroit, uh, you have the practice of voodoo and you have the practice of hoodoo. These mm-hmm. are two. These are these are some ways. Some sometimes people intersect them, but they're two separate systems. Um, voodoo spelled B-O-O-D-O-O, that's the one that we know of more because we see it in popular right. culture, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. movies, whether it's books, this yes. is what we see. It's mm-hmm. a derivative of Haitian voodoo, V-O-D-O-U. Both of them, so one is related to Haiti. The other one, the double O's, as I call it, is more associated with the, the Gulf um, Coast. Gulf Coast from like from you know Texas on the all the way across. Um, it is a centralized, complex religion. It has a creator God, and people don't know this. It has a creator God. It has okay. divinely um, um, sanctioned intermediaries called Loal who move in, so you don't directly go to God, you know, I'll just say God for, for our listeners. Okay. You don't go okay. to the creator yes. directly, mm-hmm. right? The creator figure in voodoo, like as practiced in New Orleans, is, is Dambala, and Dambala is representative of the snake. This is why you see snakes a lot, right? Mm. So when people see, think about voodoo and they see snake, snakes, they think of Satan, they think of evil. But Dambala, is, the snake is something very positive because Dambala is the creator, is the great God. And, and, and the snake is wise. 
right? And so this is why, so the very thing that people associate with the snake is totally the opposite of how the snake is generated in New Orleans. So then you have these low-offs, and then you have gifted people who are able to move in between sort of this world. They're humans, right? But they're able to sort of, they're your medium. So they have okay. mediums, right? Okay. But they're not called yeah. mediums. But they have the, the gifted ones who are able to move between sort of talking to the Loas, who talks to Dambala, the sort of this moving in between. And then you have, of course, humans. So it is a very hierarchical, structured system with very rich rituals. It's very material. Um, material materiality is really important in voodoo. Mm-hmm. But you see the altars and different things like that. You see the, the, the skulls. Um, you see the the bones, the cross. Those are the crossroads, right? That the mm-hmm. crossroads that you have you have intersectional points all over the place. That that sort of is the sort of the place where the spirit world meets the tangible world. And I know okay. this sounds familiar to spiritualists, right? Yeah. Um, but what has happened is voodoo has been demonized by popular culture, mm-hmm. but it's very very rich tradition. Now, hoodoo, on the other hand, it's a very loose system, right? Um, hoodoo is about the power of human potentiality, that humans, as humans, we have the ability to alter our reality. We have that power, and we can do it through the manipulation of physicality. So this is what hoodoo is about. So hoodoo is not this organized, so you see the difference between voodoo and hoodoo. It is not this very organized sort of religion like voodoo. But hoodoo is practice-centered. It's all about the practice. It's all about the rituals. It's all about the power of the individual to be able to change circumstances upon manipulation. That's totally different from voodoo. And so most people don't know this because they know what they see or they know what they hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but these will be the differences. But in New Orleans, you know, on the ground, voodoo is hoodoo. <laughs> and so when Mother Lizzie Anderson comes in, they're like, okay, she's talking to dead people. This is voodoo. This is hoodoo, right? So spiritualism gets this mark. They're talking to dead people. What's the difference between voodoo, hoodoo, and, and, and spiritualism? Nothing as far as on the ground. They're like, this is okay. all together. <laughs> this is all together. Well, I'm glad you clarified that, really, because our listeners wouldn't know. That's why I wanted you to clarify. No, I, also, I think it's an excellent you know, question. Yeah. Um, and then what I liked about Mother Anderson, too, I mean, she had a lot of clientele. So if you <laughs> didn't have much money and, you know, you were poor, I say that she did not charge. But if the lawyers came or doctors came, then she charged. Yeah. I thought that yeah, she was did. wonderful. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. I mean. yes. Yes. She charged based upon, you know, the, the income of her clientele. And she yeah. had a very um, – she had a very diverse clientele, not not just with respect to, um, you know, one's race um, or one's religiosity. She was seeing people from different religions, too. Um, I know. But, but also um, um, diversity with respect to social capital and monetary uh, uh, capital. Uh, mm-hmm. And she, mm-hmm. she made them pay. 
she made them pay. And what's so interesting, you know, one of the things I found out as I was sort of digging um, through all of the paper I dug through is that I have basically thousands of, this is how much information um, the federal writers collected on um, spiritual churches and people. Um, from we're talking from you know nineteen early nineteen thirty what nineteen thirties through the mid forties it's just that much and so I have thousands of pages I have mm-hmm. like un uh, basically unpublished oh, okay. books that people have written and um, one thing I one thing I did run across was the fact that her attorney went on to become a very highly esteemed um, senator in Louisiana. And when he was serving as her attorney, he was one of the most, he was considered one of the most powerful attorneys in Louisiana. So this tells me everything I need to know about Mother Louisiana. Yeah. Um, That her her personal attorney is one of the top attorneys in Louisiana. And also, uh, when one of the writers went back to look through all his records, the time that he would have served as her attorney all of those pages from that ledger had been ripped out. Really? So, yes. And so I, I, when I discovered, when I read that, and I, and I saw this, that, I saw three different writers make a note of that. So this is one, not just one single writer making this up, right? This is three different writers who went into the files and they're like, this is missing. They're asking about why, well, he didn't know her. This, this, they weren't connected in any way. You don't see any documentation. This is what people would say when they ask about these pages that were torn from the ledger. Um, this tells me all I need to know about Mother Missy Anderson. Well, obviously they didn't want that connection. It sounds like, right? Well, but they they didn't want a uh, uh, they didn't want a historical record of it. You know, That's what it, I meant. You know, yeah. yeah, they yeah they don't they didn't want a historical record of it because by this time you know he's he's really high on the political stage, so right. to be um, to be associated with you know in New Orleans they would say a voodoo woman right is right. is not good for the reputation but it's clear yeah. that people knew that that was her attorney because he was getting out of her, getting her out of jail quite a bit. Well, yeah, because of that ordinance, they were all. I can't believe yep. that they went to the church and watched her, and I can't. I just that's terrible. That's just terrible. Yeah, oh, but it was the, it was it was fear of the power, fear of power, and fear of more importantly, fear of collective power. Yes, collective. You know, power. if it's if it's just right. one person, you know, if it was just a rogue individual, um. This wouldn't be a problem. You had you know, right. you had like people who were operating by this time, right? You know, spiritualism comes to New Orleans quite. It, it becomes one of the first areas uh, where spiritualism is sort of practiced in the South, right? Very early on, the movement yeah. sort of comes to New you know engulfed New um, um, Louisiana in general and New Orleans in particular. Um, Britain even writes about it in her twenty year history. You know, she talks about spiritualism in New Orleans, so it's it's there, right? But it's circles, it's individual mediums. So it's not, you know, it's not this collective sort of like this synergy around collectivism. But this becomes problematic, right? She's not just another medium. 
She's no. another medium that's bringing people together, not just other mediums together. She's bringing people together. Um, yeah, she's this empowering is people. She's right? empowering people, yes. Yes, yes. And they don't like that. Yes. Um, yes, no. And she started some clubs for food around the community, people around the church, and yeah. so they could get yep. food. That was something. That's yep. good. She she was just she was just uh, she was like this Renaissance woman. I swear. Yeah. I mean, she had you know she had the eternal life, um, release, um, um, the release, um, 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 efforts where not only uh-huh. in New Orleans but across the Gulf Coast. Um, she was she was about about helping meeting the social needs of people. She also mm-hmm. had this theatrical. Um, the Eternal Life had this theatrical club as well, and um, I don't I don't know if you caught that, but they they would put on these plays. Yeah. And it was you know it was so much. I could totally just write a book on Mudanisi Anderson. Yeah, you could. And the That's plays like that, that they would <laughs> the <laughs> plays that she would put on is just. Um, they were um, they were so politically charged. Um, she had one where she dre- dressed up as a Native American. She was supposed to be like Pocahontas, and she talks about um, just sort of the racial history in the United States. And so it's just so many reasons why you know this woman was a threat. Um, but you know, I'm always, I'm just thinking, I, writing this book, researching for this book. In my mind, I was just like. And even when I teach my students about these early African American spiritual spiritual yes. mothers, yes, you know they just it's just hard for them to believe that these women in particular were doing all of these things during this time in history in the South. They just I know. it's so hard for them to wrap their minds around the fact that they were that they were doing these things. Um, so she had four spirit guides, Father Jones, White Hawk, mm-hmm. Black Hawk, and I was in the Virgin Mary as a spirit guide. Yes, yes. The Blessed Mother was one of her, was one of her, um, was one of her, her spirit guides. And you know what I'm still trying to figure out is, um, um, why you, in the in the archives she talks about um, and her followers who were interviewed by these federal writers talk about how she was in developing classes let them mm-hmm. know that Black Hawk is the one that's for them in the South you know the Black Hawk works for, oh, for Black people Hawk, in the yes. South. Would you say yeah. he was the predominant one for her? Say it again. Was he the predominant spirit guide, you think, for her, Black Hawk? No, he wasn't. It was, was, it was Father, Father John. I was just going to say it was a Father Jones then, yes. It was Father John, Jones, yes. That, that was her primary control. But okay. what's interesting is that, that Black Hawk came up quite a bit um, during her, um, and, and this would make sense if you think about the history of Black Hawk as a spirit guide and spiritualism as a whole, that he would come up when she was healing. And you still see Black Hawk, um, you still see Black Hawk sort of being utilized in that way in spiritual churches, is that he's associated with healing. So if you need some sort of, some sort of, some form of healing, whether it's physically, physical healing, something emotional, you have psychical breakages, 
you're going to go to a spirit person who you know their primary control is Black Hawk. That goes on even today in New Orleans. Yeah. Um, but but the good father, that was her primary guide. So this father is the does, one. So yeah. she actually had services for him. So she would dress up in, in a full garb suit with a top hat, and she would read, and and um and, and so she would undergo trance, and he would he would read, and give messages. Um, it happened at night, of course. Um, these were sort of never. It's interesting that her her followers that that sort of recorded all this information never called them seances, um, which I find it very interesting that they didn't use the terminology seances, but meetings. Like nightly meetings, meetings and nightly, nightly services, mm-hmm. but 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 it makes sense, right? If you're operating in New Orleans, which you know is <laughs> it, it's Catholicism, yeah. it bleeds Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want to utilize the term seance if you're already under the radar for being, you know, seen as a person who's doing voodoo, right? So calling service makes sense to me. Um, but this is that I'm all I'm always intrigued that I didn't see seance a lot um, in in the in the historical um, documents. But no, she would actually have nightly services for him. Um, well, yeah, she would for Black Hawk or Father Jones. No, which one are we talking about? Jones. Jones. I thought yeah. so. Yeah. She, yeah. You only see Black Hawk in the record when she was healing. Okay. It's funny yeah. because there's um, a line in your book. It says, when Mother Anderson first came down here, they meant to, she told us about Blackhawk. She told us yes, that she did. wanted us to pray to him because he was a great saint for spiritualism. Yeah. Yeah. And he you know, so think about this. Mother Lisa Anderson knew Black Hawk before she even came to Black Hawk had worked through her, right? Not yeah. only that, if you look at the history of spiritualism in Chicago and you go look at the newspapers, which I have, if you look at the spiritualist movement in Chicago, Black Hawk was a highly venerated spirit guide. So I am not surprised that Black Hawk shows up in New Orleans. Now, what's interesting, you know, via Mother Lisa Anderson, but what's mm-hmm. even more interesting, Mother Lisa Anderson knew that in that part of the South in particular, think about the genealogical history of people in the South, in that part of the South, right? That, that okay. Native Americans are highly venerated, even in my own personal family, right? Like okay. growing up, I get these stories about how my relatives were, you know, half Cherokee. And have, there is this profound, uh, particularly among black communities, this profound respect for Native American people in the Gulf Coast. She knew that. So Mother Lisa Anderson just didn't say, oh, I think I'll open a church in New Orleans. She actually took scouting trips. Like she yeah, actually sure. came to make sure, and I have, like, um, one of the people who she was really close with that told her, I don't think what you're going to do is going to work. Like, I have, like, a transcription of, like, their conversation, right? She's saying, no, this will work. So she, she, knew, she, she studied the area. So she knew, right, this is, again, smart, right? She didn't, 
even though Jones was her person, she knew that the people in that area would be more responsive to Black Hawk. And she was right. If you look at spiritual churches and you talk to spiritual people in New Orleans, because Black Hawk is not venerated in all African-American spiritual churches. Not every church yeah, is a Black Hawk church. I was going to ask that. He's not, right? Because that's what I read in the book. That some of them no. uh, don't. There's different services, no. right, that they use yes, Black some, Hawk. Some churches do. And some individuals do, like Bishop Jackson, who's in Chapter 5 right. of the book. He's he a Black Hawk Black person, Hawk, right? right? That's what I thought, But this yes. is a simple fact that Black Hawk is still <laughs> around in 2020. Tells you that Mother Lisa Anderson was right. That, that, yes. that like, Black Hawk is still in New Orleans. A hundred years, you know, over a hundred years after she introduced people of African descent to the spirit of Black Hawk. That's saying something. Yes, it is. And that's what yeah. I mean. I, I saw that in the book, what that the, some, like I said, some of them denounced Blackhawk and didn't use, use him in the services. No, a lot of people use, like the Blessed Mother is a very um, um, popular spirit guide um, among um, some spirituals, some spiritual people in New Orleans. You see the Blessed Mother. Um, you hear of the Blessed Mother quite a bit. Um, so you see sort of the blending of Catholicism Christi- with I was going to say Catholicism. Yeah, Catholicism with um, spiritualism. And you did have spiritualist churches, you know, after the death of Mother Lisa Anderson, who did incorporate a variety of um, um, other traditions, whether it be um, African-derived religions like um, voodoo or some elements of conjure, um, mm-hmm. they totally became very blended. So, so the church, the church after Mother Leafy Anderson, you know, some were spiritualist churches. Some of them were spiritual churches that took on different other sorts of blends, um, which okay. sort of makes sense, right? Um, but that yeah. belief that you could commune with um, spirit and that God is spirit, that this, this is all about spirit. Um, no matter how it's manifested, that's still like the core of each one of these churches, that God is spirit and that certain individuals have this ability to serve as conduits. So, um, yeah, you still see that very much alive um, in the churches and in in the people themselves. That's all. So, and then I was noticing in a book, the healing demonstrations include prayer, laying on hands, and rubbing the body with (laughs) blessed oil. Yeah. Is that something she started in the churches? No. So, so her, so her, she was a spiritualist. And so a lot of the activities that you would see happening in her church based upon the historical record really aligned with what you would see in any other spiritualist sort of say, like seance, um, large seance. Okay. Um, and okay. so she, she really operated along those lines. It would sort of be people who she trained that sort of moved um, sort of, you know, that trajectory that followed her that took a variety of tracks. And so you have 
um, some spirit mothers or some spirit fathers who started to incorporate um, Protestant-type traditions of laying on, on the hands with oil. Um, you, you find language, uh, verbiage like Jehovah being used to describe spirit guides. Um, uh-huh. So I would say post Leafy Anderson, this is where, because like Mother Catherine Seal will be an example of someone who was this profound, respected healer in the, you know, not just in New Orleans, but across a lot of states. She was known for her healing power, but her primary guide, her primary guide was Jehovah, right? So yeah. even thinking about the, the shifts in language, um, this is something that will ha- happens because they're in New Orleans. Why would that not happen? You know, spiritualism in Chicago is different from spiritualism once it's transplanted in New Orleans. That's a whole other different cultural gumbo. <laughs> um, well, it, well, it yes. is a gumbo. It's a mix of all these things. And so what happens is it infuses into spiritualism as sort of interjected and it turns into all these wonderful sort of um, offshoots that look really different. So since you just brought that up about uh, mother to the motherless, let's talk about Mother Catherine Sills. She, yeah. She was something. Um, she was a cook, right? And yes. she built up such a following in eight years of over a thousand people, mm-hmm. they said. Yeah, she, um, she, Mother Lisa and all of these women in particular, um, and, you know, I'll focus a bit on Bishop E.J., um, okay. Johnson towards towards the end, but but this well, this book was about all that. about yeah, but this book was all about sort of showing the ways in which African American women were so instrumental in introducing um, spiritualism to that region, and I and and no one had really done it before, so that became one of my. In that way, the book sort of wrote itself. I feel like they were like saying, "This is what." needs to happen. Um, And Mother Catherine Seale becomes, yeah, initially the, I was going to put Mother Catherine Seale and Mother Lisa Anderson in the same chapter. And as I start writing the book, it, it, it was just so, so much information on each one of them. And so I was just like, there's no way these two profound women can go in the same chapter. And I think you did it right. Mother Cat, thank you. I think Mother Catherine, Mother Catherine Steele is bold. She's courageous. She had a heart for children, and she, she, you've read the book and you know her story and you know why and you know like the impetus of why she decided to you know, establish the manger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I think out of all the women that I've written, or all of the spiritual women that I've written about, her, she, she, she stands out to me because of this. Mother you want to share that Steele, with your listeners about why she decided to uh, build the manger? Say it, say it again now. Would you like to... Um, Share with the listeners about why so, she yeah, so to she, manger. So yes, so so she decided to, so she decided to build the manger because a couple of reasons. Number one, 
she wanted to build a place where people can receive healing who, regardless of their race, regardless of their, um, their position in society, that they could have a place where they could be healed. That would be number one. Two, she was committed to protecting what she calls the most vulnerable individuals in society, and that would be children. Um, in New Orleans, she was particularly upset at the amount of orphans and half-orphans that were in New Orleans, or women who were aborting babies, or women who were, you know, tossing their babies, you know, literally tossing their babies to the side of the roads. She wanted to build a safe haven for babies. So her mission was to create a place really to house and to take care of the most vulnerable of New Orleans society. So unlike Mother Leafy Anderson, she wasn't she wasn't really interested in like building this these networks of churches across states, like an interstate sort of um, model. For her, she wanted to build a compound, and she did. She bought she in, in the lower ninth yeah in the lower ninth ward when there was absolutely nothing there but swamp pretty much yeah. some scattered houses. Um, she bought all this land cash. And people are like, where did she get the money? Well, she was healing. She was healing out of her home, and mm-hmm. people were like, people were. She was healing people, and they were giving her money. And it wasn't just people in in black communities that were giving. You don't you don't buy acres of land based upon the people in your community giving you you know donations. <laughs> you have to have quite a bit of money to buy acres of land. Um, even if it's in a swamp area, you still have to pay cash for it. Um, and so she, before she even started building the majors, had clientele, and she was working out of her home, and she amassed enough money to buy all this land in the Lower Ninth War before it was really well developed. And she, this is when she started building, she built the manger. She sort of, and, and it was called the Church of Innocent Blood because she didn't want any more innocent blood being shed, you know, children. Yeah. Um, but it it turned into like this compound, and it was it was geographically um I, um, um it was geographically separated, <clears throat> and what she was able to do is it was a residential compound. You know, I mean, you had people who would come to healing services and leave, but then you mm-hmm. had hundreds of people who were actually living there so much so that she built barracks, um, and there was it was an integrated community. So while it was predominantly African-American, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, while you have, it was was predominantly African-Americans, but if you look at the picture in the book, you had, you know, you had people of European descent, including children, who were living at the manger. And we're talking in the 19th, you know, we're talking 30s and late 20s, 30s. There were laws on the book where you did there that was not to happen no so cohabitation between the races was not it it Mm -hmm. was that was a that was a law that you did not want to break no you did not but she did did it Uh, yeah unapologetically (laughs) she did and i have to bring up one story that you had in the book that um she met with uh Mother Anderson, and I guess she wasn't dressed appropriately, and she didn't, <laughs> yeah. because Mother Anderson, I think, dressed to the T's, I would think. 
that's what I got anyway. And so she yeah. wasn't dressed like Mother Anderson thought she should be, and she left. So she was, this is such an interesting story. Because, so she was actually in Mother Anderson's developing class. Yeah. <clears throat> so she was a student of Mother Anderson. And so they had a particular sort of uniform that they would have right. to wear. Um, as a part of being, you know, a part of being in the class. And so she decided that she wanted to wear a particular type of shirt. <clears throat> and and I didn't, the, looking at the description in the historical records, I was like, I have never heard this type of shirt. But it was like a sailor-like shirt. Mm-hmm. And so Mother Anderson basically told her she was basically out of uniform. And Mother Catherine Seal was like, I don't care. You know, I'm paraphrasing here. No, um, I know. Basically left. Yeah, <laughs> and basically okay. left. Yeah. And so what's so interesting is it tells you the type of women, you yes. know, that they were, right? That Mother Anderson is like, no, this is the order. This is how it should be. And mm-hmm. Mother Catherine Steele is like, this is how I want to do it. And so when you see the ways in which they contributed to spiritualism in New Orleans, they did it their way. They did. Yes. And two, I, different, two different tracks. But two very um, um, two different tracks, but their contributions are like equally as phenomenal. Well, they cared about empowering, you know, the the poor and the marginal people. Yep. Both of them, they really yep. did. Yep. And yes, so they did. One other story I think our listeners will like when she um, uh, she went for a healing. Right, I think she was abused by her husband, so she went for a healing. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. And uh, yes, brother, I do. is that brother uh, Isaiah? Is that I, correct? Isaiah, brother Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. Said, I shall not heal you because you're not the right color. And that right, really right. impressed on her that she would never turn away anybody. Yep. Yep. It that was um that was a life changing moment for her, and it also yes. becomes the moment when she meets her primary guide, Jehovah. Like Jehovah, Jehovah yes. healed her. Jehovah healed her. And Jehovah Jehovah gave her the vision of the manger and that this is what you're going to do. And she 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 basically said, you know, because of that experience that she would never ever, ever turn anyone away and I think because she was in that sort of abusive situation also Mm -hmm. right that yes this is why women um and children were of the utmost importance for her um and and you'll see like if you look at this sort of the historical documents all of these sort of interviews that were um collected by the federal writers um Mm -hmm. of of people who were part of um her her group, they talk about how there were so many women there who who came from homes that were just, you know, just for a variety of reasons, reasons were so fractured and just not good and healthy for them. And they came to her and she, she didn't ask a question. She just, she took them in. And so that picture in the book, it's so important to me because it it's shows good. you it it is just it's like when people say that a picture is worth a thousand words, that's one of those photos because you see 
the babies, you see the young children, you see, and I have like the census documentation to show that she had like all these young people like living in her home and how she, she how she made them go to school. It It is just like, it's, uh, it's amazing. It was such a joy to, um, to be in a position to be able to write about these women um, and, and to share it with the world um, because people probably had heard of them or had never heard of them but didn't really know just how much they contributed, not only on the spirit side. This is why this is about spirit, spiritual and social transformation. Yes, it but is. But their, their social contributions, their contributions to society, it's just, it's just awesome um, that they did, they did both and. They attended to the spirit of the people, but they attended to the social needs of the people. Um, and so that was important to show that balance between the two. They were called, were they called the saints? The saints? The they were followers? called the saints. Yep, the saints. they were called the saints. They had a particular uniform. Um, yeah, they were called the saints. And um, it, it's, it's just the, the reporters are the ones. I mean, you had so many reporters. I can't tell you how many newspaper articles I read by reporters who talk about their journey to <laughs> to go see Mother yes. Catherine and the stuff mm-hmm. that they had to go through to get to her because it wasn't an easy um it wasn't an easy journey. Like you literally could not drive there. You had to dump you know, leave your car and walk. Yeah, she had to um, walk. So it wasn't easy to get to her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it wasn't because it was swamp. Um with you know, it's pretty much sort of how, you know, the Lord Ninth Ward after Katrina sort of mm-hmm. it's just interesting where it's sort of is returning to, because it's still, you know, three-fourths of it still is not, you know, built back up like it was pre-Katrina. And we're talking 15 years after um, um, Katrina. And so it's interesting that it's, it's almost returned to this space where it was kind of like how she she sort of began to chop the land down and, you know, and occupy it. Um, but it wasn't an easy place to go to. Do you think she might have done that for a reason? Strategically? Oh, she totally did it for it. She totally, she totally did it for a reason. Of course, she, right. she speaks of it with respect to this being sort of a, a vision from the spirit world, right? Um, right? But at the same time, she understood for her to be able to say, I don't care about the skin you're in, that you're going to be healed and housed. She knew she couldn't do that in, like, a place like, like, Mother Lisa Anderson built her church almost in the heart of New Orleans. Yes. So she knew she couldn't do that, right? And so she envisioned, like, something expansive. So she knew she needed land, but she could have gone east, right? She could have gone, like, towards east New Orleans. But she, she chose the swamp land for a reason. So she understood that I, I sort of need to be geographically isolated in order for this to happen. That's what I was thinking. That's why she did that. Yeah. Because people actually <laughs> yeah. had to get out of their cars and walk across yeah. this swamp area. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's... And she had a full setup there, you know, besides for the, the, the students, you know, the kids needing to get to school. She had a grocery store. Um, so, I mean, they had everything that they needed within within that space. People would bring things in. It was pretty self sufficient so, then, right? Oh yeah, they were they were totally self sufficient. 
That's something. They were totally um, self-sufficient, yeah. She left a legacy, too. Um, yes, she did. She did. So we talk about, you want to talk, bring up a couple of the healers that were in the book? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, they're, they're, so that, that third chapter, I sort of talk about, I, I turn my attention to sort of the, the healers. And, 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 and I have to say that, of course, Mother Captain Steele was a yes. profound healer. Yes. Um, and, and Mother Lisa Anderson were they're profound healers. Um, because, you know, in the spiritual churches, prophecy and healing are like those are the hallmarks, um, sort of reading and, and healing. And so, but but I wanted to pay, I really wanted to highlight um, some other healers who were really um, just phenomenal women early on in the spiritualist okay. in, in New Orleans. And one in particular who really, um, while all of them, you know, deserve discussion, I know I can't talk about all of them given our time, no, but Mother Kate, Mother Kate Francis is one who, the one who they call the barefoot ruler. And um, I thought it was really important to always give the background of how these women came to become a part of the spiritualist movement. And, um, but, 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 Mother Kate Francis was a highly revered killer in the city of New Orleans, mm-hmm. and she was not only a not only was she revered, but people were scared of her. They were terrified of her um, because she was known to be this powerful killer. But right. she also became known as the person who can unfix people, right? You, so what okay. I mean by that for the listeners who, who may not know, so in New Orleans we know that voodoo and hoodoo, and we know now that there are two separate systems, you know, people believed in the fact that people could fix them or make something happen to them, right, by way of hoodoo in particular or some sort of ritual, and so she became known as the person that could not only just heal you physically, you know, your body, your mind, um, your spirit, um, your psyche, but, 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 but also she can be the one to uncross you or unfix you when someone has put something on you. This is why people were afraid of her, <laughs> right? That, that hmm. she's this profound healer, but she can whatever. So I've, I include in this book all the you know these stories about people coming to her, and she's 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 known as she's sort of like an exorcist to sort of putting in to put it into terminology that people probably okay. can understand. She mm-hmm. becomes known as this person that can get these evil entities out of you, and a lot of times they came out in sort of reptilian form. I talk about that in the book. Yeah, um, you this is why people were afraid of her. They were definitely afraid of her. She did all her services at, at night, uh, but she was a very gentle person. But people were in great awe of her healing abilities. Um, but she was, it, I described sort of the ways in which people talked about even her funeral, that people loved her and they respected her, but they also knew that she was really, really powerful and her primary guide was St. Michael and what's interesting about um, St. Michael because all her churches were named after her spirit guide St. Michael and 
St. Michael is still today a primary guide that you can find in, in the New Orleans spiritual churches, St. Michael. And it, it is not by um, happen chance, as we say in the South. It's because of Mother K. Francis. This is the reason why he's, he's still there, that that spirit guide is associated with power, with um, quick return. You want it done quick, he can make it happen. Power, right? Um, people describe him very much in line with the archangel, right, St. Michael, yes. that his spirit guide is so powerful that he put his, you know, his foot on the neck of Satan, and and so he's that sort of powerful spirit guy. This is this is put into place by Mother Kate, um, and so this is why it was important to talk about her healing ministry, um, her healing activities in the book. Um, but she also she rapped, she knocked, she was a rapping medium. And so people haven't really written about her, um, and a couple people who have mentioned her, they don't talk about the fact that she considered herself a spiritualist. She was a rapping medium. This is how she communicated and contacted her her spirit, this, like her spirit guide, St. Michael, St. Peter, or any of the spirits, is that she, she rapped. And so that was important for me to talk about as well, that you, yes, you see these blended sort of forms of spiritualism that's happening as you move through the decades, but you still have some of those practices that you you see, you know, in the early days of spiritualism with the Fox sisters, um, the rapping, right? This is how the first communication is sort of chronicled. And you see Mother Kate Francis following along that lineage with respect to being a rapping medium. Um, so she's one of the ones I really focus on in that chapter. And it, I can't, you know, for the, for the listeners out there, you can buy the book in paperback now. It's not like this incredibly expensive book anymore because you have to read that, that, that part of the chapter about her, like, for yourself. I can't even give it justice. She was no, a profound person. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Um, so we're we're running out of time pretty soon, but I got a couple of the Guilford, uh, Miss Guilford. You want to talk about? She was like a trance, a trance uh, medium, right? Yes, she was. And 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 one thing about her speaker. was, she was a trance speaker, and she to me sort of she continued the legacy of Mother Catherine Seal. <clears throat> and that children were very important to her. Um, if you and, and in the book, I talk about her. Her church was the infant infant Prague, uh, yes. Jesus of Prague, and yes. she she was all about equal rights for women, and she was all about children. So for her, she was a profound believer that children could be mediums that you didn't have to be a certain age to be able to operate in your in, in, in mediumship. And so and she pushed that in her church. And she got a lot of back, you know, pushback. 
mm-hmm. from, you know, when she's operating in the spiritual, um, by this time they're called spiritual, right? Because, you know, between the 1940s and 50s, you have more men coming up, coming into leadership positions in, in the spiritualist churches. And there is this, um, this push to move towards respectability in the city. And as long as they were, you know, sort of seen as spiritualists, they were connected to the dead or this practice of speaking to the dead. And what they wanted to do is sort of separate themselves from spiritualism. And they did this by dropping the IST and starting to refer to themselves as spiritual. So this sort of happens when more men began began to be in these leadership positions. You see more women not being able to be um, um, climbing up the vertical um, ladder with respect to um, ecclesiastical um, structural power. And and so it's just wanting to, to, to sort of separate from this spiritualist sort of the spiritualist beginnings. And so she, she when she comes into the movement, she, she, she's getting pushback because she's an outspoken woman. She knows she has these gifts. And people are pushing back. Then she because she becomes this mouthpiece. It's almost like spirits, like these past spirits, begin to talk through her to say, "No, we're talking back. This, this, we're, we're not. No, we're going to continue to progress as women." And she becomes like this trans medium. She, she becomes mm-hmm. like the voice piece for <laughs> for women who have who or who are now operating from the other side. And so she becomes this champion for the rights of women, not only in the spiritual churches, but also women in general in New Orleans. And she becomes this champion for, for children. And she's profoundly respected. Even the men who she talks, she talks back to them, right, they have this profound respect for her gifting and her, um, her fearlessness. And so it's like this continuation of what we see Mother Leafy Anderson, we sort of see the plant, like the, the 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 seed has been germinated, but now it's like a tree by the time we get to um, Archbishop Lydia, and she she is she is a personification of Mother Leafy Anderson and Mother Catherine Seals, like conjoined mm-hmm. together. If they yeah. if their superpowers could be conjoined together, it manifests themselves in her. Yes, I I I thought that too. So um, yeah. I do I do. This has been fascinating. Thank you very much. And I do want to. You're welcome. Um, I love it. I do want to have you talk about when you made your trip to New Orleans. It's in you know the last chapter. You talked about going mm-hmm. down there. Could you uh, share mm-hmm. with the listeners some of that, please? Yeah, it's, so so the last chapter focuses on post um, post Katrina of New Orleans, and it 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 was not only a devast it was not only a storm that brought about devastation to the city, but it particularly brought about devastation for the spiritual churches in New Orleans. And yes. in the book, I you know I I give you the numbers, and you see just how. I saw um, that. The storm decimated um, this vibrant um, community of spiritual churches that are no longer there. And um, But what's interesting is what I try to highlight in the book through 
Bishop Jackson, who was a well-respected medium in the city, spiritual person in the city, is what I tried to really bring to the forefront of that chapter is this this move of um, spiritualism back to its roots, sort of back to the residential private spaces. Because even though you have two spiritualist church, two spiritual churches that are in existence in New Orleans, and you have some that are that are operating outside of New Orleans in like rural areas, so mm-hmm. there are some there. Most of them are really small, so it's not like it used to be where you have had a, a larger number of people going into the public spaces. But what you have is the movement of people back into their homes. So you have spiritualism that's still alive and, and well, but it's within the private spaces of, of, of the adherence. So whether it's through um, one-on-one clients or it's through circles, this is sort of how you see um, spiritualism sort of manifest or spiritual uh, people sort of practicing their faith in New Orleans because truth be told, it's <clears throat> most of the, the spiritual churches were in the Lower Ninth Ward, which was completely decimated. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so and 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 New Orleans has undergone gentrification, and so where it used to be really inexpensive to be able to rent something or buy something, um, that's no longer the case in in New Orleans. And then and and then also you had a, the dispersal of a lot of people across the United States who who haven't gone back home, but they're back to New Orleans, but they're still they consider themselves spiritual people. So the practice still goes on. It just looks very different than sort of the institutionalized space um, that Mother Lucy Anderson um, created. And so um, the likelihood that it will ever, ever be the way in which it was uh, pre-Katrina it, it, it's hard to say it will ever go back in that direction just because of the politics and, um, like I said, the gentrification of, of like, what's going on in, in New Orleans. It, it's just not in a position where I can see where, pe- where people of the faith could actually build and have freestanding buildings cheaply. Um, and, and, and so it's still a prosperous movement, but it's just, it has returned back to the private residential spaces now. Oh, and uh, Bishop Jackson, uh, he, I, yeah. he's kind of like a fascinating human being from what I read in your Bishop book. Jackson is, it is, when I think of spiritual, spiritual churches today, he's the person I think of where it is um it's alive and well in people and, and, and it's alive and well in him. He is he has you know, he's such an interesting person because he doesn't have a, a he has two primary controls, you know, because I tried to, you know, in the time that I spent with him and I, I still talk to him today quite a bit. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, so who's first? Is it Blackhawk first? Who's, like, actually in control? And he was like, you know, St. Michael and Blackhawk, they're both equally in control. And I'm, I, and I'm just like, this, this says so much about him as a person that yes. two of the most powerful spirit guides 
in the mm-hmm. spiritual church Parthenon operates through him. <laughs> so uh, that he's both a Blackhawk person and he's both. And what's interesting about Bishop Jackson, so he he is um, he's a profound healer. He actually um, um, pastors now a church in Baton Rouge, so he goes. Um, back and forth between New Orleans and Baton Rouge is a small spiritual um, church in Baton Rouge. So, so, so it's, it might not be in New Orleans, but he has like a space um, that's sort of thriving. It's small, but it's thriving um, in, mm-hmm. in Baton Rouge, but he's a, he's a profound um, healer that's really well respected and um, who, who doesn't, who has two powerful primary spirit guides. And I could write a book on him as well. It he is a lin he he is representative of a lineage of spirit spiritual people. His mother was spiritual, was a spiritual person. Um, all of his aunts and great aunts were spiritual people. So it so he is a product of 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 African Americans in New Orleans who practice the spiritual faith. He's a product of that. Um, and you sort of see his children sort of being raised. And so it's going to be interesting to see his, he has like 30 something grandkids. So it'll be interesting to see wow. how, yeah, how, you know, how, how that, and, and it's a matrilineal sort of, he's like the first man. It's like a matrilineal line yes. of spiritual women and his family. So it'll be interesting to see out of, you know, out of his wonderful family, who will pick up that spiritual torch and 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 and, and press on um, for the for, for the faith? So um, he he's one of those, and I really dissected some of his rituals. So it would yes. be, you know, for listeners like it, it you know, it's worth reading that chapter five word for word because it is so packed full of so it much, <laughs> so, much so much stuff. And he's talk, yeah, he's talking about the ways that he's he his how how spiritualism allows him to combat, you know, mm-hmm. race, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, racism and um, economic um, instability that's being caused through, you know, the politics that are going on in New Orleans. He, he really talks about the way in which his practice of spiritualism is really help, really has helped him and has helped I'm people sure. who he serves. Um, so it's just a wonderful to move from Mother Lucy Anderson. We're talking, you know, before you know, 1918, 1919, to mm-hmm. move to, you know, Bishop Jackson. That's, you know, it's a book that covers a lot of ground in a, in a short period of time. I mean, in a in, in, in few pages. <laughs> it was wonderful. I saw uh, one picture that he uses in healing um, he used ribbons and uh, a he uses say... ribbons. Ribbons, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes he I uses found that ribbons. Different, different, yeah, different color, um, different colors, um, you know, tied together um, mm-hmm. for different things. And he's just so phenomenal because the oh, the amount of the amount of notes I have from our conversations, and you know, so many wonderful things that he shared with me that he was like, you can't write about that, you know, and he's read the book, you know, so he, you know, oh, that yeah. was important that he, that he read pieces of the book as I was writing it. And, but yeah. all these nuggets of things that he gave me, and he was like, you can't publish that. And I'm like, ah, 
<laughs> Please let me publish this. I know. Uh, but you know, you have to be respectful of no, you when do. people you do. when people trust you with with stuff, and they're just like. And I understand why I couldn't write about certain things that he told yes. me because, again, people are people still see spiritual people in New Orleans as being associated with voodoo and hoodoo and you know something derogatory when it's a really beautiful. Um, tradition that's been around for a long time in New Orleans. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you that it, it just, your book, it just fascinated me. I mean, all the things that I didn't know about and you know, I try to go into uh, different places and archives because I do, you know, blogs on spiritualism myself, but this is a yeah. true gem. This is really a true gem. Honestly, it is. Well, Thank you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank yeah. you. That that means a lot because it was um it was a joy to write. It was a it was a joy to write. And even though, you know, I'm not myself um a practitioner of spiritualism, mm-hmm. I felt mm-hmm. you know, I grew up in Alabama, so I'm a child of the okay. Gulf Coast. Um, yes. um but I felt I felt that I was getting help from the other side. I I'm felt sure. This urging, this urge to to write these stories, and I kid you not, the the information that I found, I sometimes I feel like the information, the 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 art when you you work in archives, when you have so much yes. information, mm-hmm. and then you find that piece where you're like, how did I even it's find so, this? Wow. It's almost like come? the it's yeah, all, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's almost like the it's like okay, go to this box, go to this box. I felt. Like there was this push from the others to get these stories, to get the story out there. That's wonderful. Well, you know, you've done justice to this subject. You know that, don't you? Oh, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot. It was a joy to write. There's books like that out there like this. There isn't. There really isn't. People need to be aware of this is part of uh, the spiritual, uh, the spiritualism history that people need to be aware of. Yes, it's. Yes, you know? it is because it's not just, and that's one of my missions is to um, to 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 let people understand that you know African Americans have been a part of the spiritualist movement yes. from the beginning. You know, you had an African American people listeners know Amy and Isaac Post, and they know. Um, their role in, in, in spiritualism in Rochester and that they had one of the earliest um, spiritualist circles in the nation, period. And yes. one of the attendees quite frequently of, because he was living there, was William Cooper Nell, who was okay. a black abolitionist, but he was a spiritualist. And so, and so, and we're talking even before Pascal Beverly Randolph. So when we talk about, you know, I did a blog black on people, him. Yes, I did a blog. Yeah, on well, him. well, I did. but William Cooper Nell, William Cooper Nell was actually a part of Amy and Isaac Post spiritual circle. So he I didn't proceeds. know that. He, yes, he goes before, and the reason I know this is because of his letters. That that are archived at the University of Rochester's um, special collections, and they're digitized because of one of my students now. So if people are interested in in going to read William Cooper Nail, they just go to University of Rochester's special collections. They can and they can find his letters in the Amy and Isaac Post digital archives. Is um, there I had a, a link on that? 
Is there a link on that? There's a link, Someone? and I can totally, like, Can you send it, send it to me? I Could can you? totally send that to you. And you can read the letters and where he, I and, where he and he was, yeah, so the book, the book, the next, not this book that I'm working on, but the book after that will, will mm-hmm. highlight just how instrumental he was in starting, really putting some, 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 some theme in the movement in Boston. And so my, my, my goal is for him to get the sort of credit that, that he deserves because he was really instrumental in planting um, the seed of spiritualism in Boston. So you spell his last name Nail, like N-A-I-L, is that correct? Um, N-E-L-L. Oh, mm-hmm. N-E-L-L? Okay. Yes. So see, N-E, okay. Yes, and I and I can send that um, I can send that link to you for for listeners who's interested because all of his letters, um, his discourse, he, him, him and Amy um, Post were really really close, um, yeah. and so yes, and so I can totally send that link to you. It will be worth looking at the ways in which he really loved spiritualism. Yes, and he wanted that. to write about it. Yeah, he wanted to write about it. About it, but he was as I, I I call him a closet spiritualist because he was afraid for people right. to um, to know that he was a spiritualist because he was an abolitionist. Now he was an early yes. work for Garrison's paper. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Garrison, and that was a very yeah. Christian. Yeah, that yes. was a very um, um, they, Christ, Christianity. You know, African Americans who were abolitionists were Christian. And so he had like a, a fear that if people knew that he was a, a, a spiritualist, a practicing spiritualist, that that would be a problem. Um, so this, so the letter sort of captures all of that. Well, it'll be fascinating that, so. to read that. I, I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah. Thank you very much. That'd be sounds, fascinating. Sounds great. Yeah. So um, now, before we wrap up, I, I have one more question, and the question is. Okay. Who and what has inspired you to take on this work in your life? I decided as a graduate student that I want to write about people and traditions that have not been written about. So my whole mission as a scholar actually is to give voice to the voiceless, to unmute voices that have been historically repressed, um, some intentionally repressed, some not so, not intentionally repressed. But the bottom line is their stories and their narratives and their histories and their contributions have been repressed. And so Everything that I write is about bringing recognition to people and places and traditions and activities that, that are not in the record. And so with respect to spiritualism, that's one of my missions, right, to complicate the historical records of, of spiritualism. And I, and, and, and I have, have committed myself to do that by focusing on the role and the contributions that African-Americans have made to the movement. And so that's like my, that's my, one of my ultimate goals as a scholar is to, to give voice to the muted and to the voiceless 
that's my that's my that's my mission. Well, so far you've done a splendid job of it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you have, you know, and um, I'm so thank happy you. that that you uh, came and shared your time with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. This has, been a, this has been a joy. I know my husband's like, you're doing this on Father's Day? And I was like, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh. Well, but, you know, I think you have inspired people to really look into um, this, that they know nothing about the uh, African-American contribution to spiritualism. Yeah. Right. And, it's, and, it's, and, and why would they, right? Nothing has really been written about no, it but that's going to I be know. my challenge is to to you know while i still while i'm still on the other side as my as my spiritual people say while i'm still yes. on this side you mm-hmm. know um that that that's my mission is to to complicate because you know it just it is what it is but now we're going to complicate the narrative and and i think it's worth complicating it's such a wonderful tradition in and of itself you know i want to talk about you know why African Americans were so enthralled with spiritualism, and so um, despite the, the 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 good, the bad, and ugly of early spiritualism, right? Because that that happened yes. in a particular historical context. Yeah. And so you know, but what was it about it? What was it about this movement that 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 attracted African Americans? And so and, and so that's what I want to talk about. Uh, particularly in that historical book I'm going to to, to write after the one, one that I'm working on with the space of religion and technology. So, well, you know, when you get that book written, we want to have you back on as a guest. That sounds great. I'll be more than Good. happy to return. Okay, thank you very much, and I hope the rest of your day goes well. And I just thank want to you tell very all, much. Thank you. And I just want to tell Thank all the truth so seekers, I, I just enjoyed this so much. This book, people have to really go out and, and buy this book. It just, it's just so much information. It's unbelievable. Thank you. So, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So have a great day. We, you too. So as we close, okay. I'd just like to tell all the truth seekers out there, may you be the light that helps others see.